Hello, everyone, and welcome to the GXM podcast. We take a good hard look at news and topics around video game music and the intersection between the games and music industries. We aim to publish fortnightly, so please be sure to subscribe. My name is Tom Quillfelt. I'm a freelancer and game music fan, as well as community manager and AR consultant for Laced Records. I also podcast with the Kane and Rince crew. Joining me is journalist Matt Ombler, who has interviewed a string of composers, music artists, and others across this space, with pieces published in Enemy, The Washington Post, Wired, and many more. Matt, there's only one word on our minds this week, and that word is Zelda. Indeed. Uh, have you been playing Link's Awakening? No, I mean uh, Tears of the Kingdom. I have, but not as much as I would like. So I've been at a wedding on the weekend, which is absolutely amazing. Got back on the Sunday, very hungover. Probably had about two hours with it then. Um, I've been doing stuff after work every single night, and I've just managed. So I've probably put in about three or four hours so far. I've just got out of the tutorial section and landed in Hyrule, and wow. Like, I think the only thing I can say about it is, like, anybody who's not played this yet and is wondering, is it really as good as people are saying it is? Like, I cannot remember the last time a game made me smile so much. Do you know what I mean? Like, just naturally putting a smile on my face, like, every five or ten minutes where I do something cool, and I'm just, I find myself breaking out into a smile constantly. Like, I just love it. Like, what do you think? Well, I have the privilege of playing it with two young uh, uh, kids that the older one is definitely the right age. And he's mm. just like, I, he didn't know we were going to get it. I kind of faked <laughs> him out that we were going to get the pre-order. And then brilliantly, the pre, the the it arrived a day early. So I had it and um was telling everybody and everyone was like oh i'm so jealous i need to play it right now and i was like yeah i'm not actually going to get to play it because i need the kids to get home because i i hadn't promised i'm not going to play every single minute of it with them but uh we played uh together so far and yeah there's something about there's something magical about like i was telling uh my seven-year-old about it and he saw the preview video they put out when they was introduced people to the mechanics to ultra hand yeah. and stuff and his mind was we were walking back from school his mind was just buzzing he was like yeah we can get like a mushroom and a plank of wood and then fix it together and get a rocket and then fly off up and over the world and that's how we beat ganon and we're gonna do and it's just it was just so so lovely and then um i've kind of while we've been playing with during the ultra hand tutorials and stuff like that i've sort of deferred to him and let his brain run away with solutions and stuff hmm. um and that's just been magical actually uh and re- like a completely different way to kind of experience the game than i would have done uh if i was just playing it by myself so that's been amazing actually a super big bonding moment and obviously yes rapturous reception for the game i think um it's one of only six games ever to get a famitsu 40 and a edge 10 yep alongside lots of other Zelda games, um, Bayonetta and GTA V. So that's the kind of company it's keeping. Um, yeah, it's been wonderful. We got off the Tutorial Island, got down to Hyrule, done a few bits down there, but um, uh, it's been very special time, I think, actually. Um, and you have been... We've obviously probably both been thinking about the music. I haven't actually heard much of the score because the kids talk so much. <laughs> um <laughs> So I might, uh, I'll have to probably catch up with the the soundtrack afterwards. But you've been 
you, your head is just, you've been bathing in this stuff, haven't you? You've done a, a fantastic piece for Polygon, is that right? With mm. with interviewing lots of musicians about kind of Koji Kondo and the series' influence on them. Um, what are some of the kind of key or your favourite things you, you took away from writing that? So that basically I saw um, Polygon put out a call for pitches asking for ideas for a Zelda-thon that they're doing. Naturally, I was kind of like, well, I need to think of something musical. Um, over the years, I've discovered quite a lot of bands and artists who have done covers of Zelda music. So the idea was basically just to reach out to them, also go on the hunt for some more Zelda covers and remixes, and just speak to these people and just learn how much of a relationship they have with the music and the Legend of Zelda, but also like what inspired them to do these remixes and covers. So really cool story from a metalcore band called August Burns Red, who I grew up listening to. Their bassist, um, Dustin, he's done a Legend of Zelda metalcore cover, which is absolutely sick, just breakdowns, blast beats. He grew up playing the Zelda games, like similar to like how you were saying earlier, playing with your sons, and that's a really important bonding moment you know what i mean it brings families together and he had the same experience playing a link to the past and ocarina of time with his brother and with his mum when he was growing up so it's tied to these kind of childhood memories and then you've got other people that i spoke to so there's um a band called sweet valley musical duo they've done a basically just a remix album of ocarina of time like kind of like a hip-hop mashup of all of these samples There's um, Imagine Dragons as well. I remember the Game Awards might have been 2015 show where they got on stage with Koji Kondo and just played the Zelda medley. And you can see the videos up on YouTube and like you can you can see the look on the band's face where they're just kind of like looking at Koji Kondo with that look that just kind of says... We can't believe we're doing this. This is just yeah, starstruck. I mean? Yeah, imagine being on stage with Koji Konda, but not only that, like also basically jamming with him. Of all the people you could jam with in the world, I think Koji Konda is like right up there. So yeah, the, some really cool stuff I discovered as well. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? This year we've got Final Fantasy sixteen still to come up, but that's mm. the Final Fantasy fourteen composer who himself has quite a following now but it's no longer Noboru Uematsu who is probably the only game composer other than that, that can sort of rival Koji Kondo in yeah. terms of just fondness you know the covers and arrangements scene um, are obsessed with the Legend of Zelda and Final Fantasy and possibly Legend of Zelda actually um, get you know slightly ahead even mm. uh, um, uh, arguably maybe I don't know. We'll we'll ask uh, our interviewee later about you know the influence of Zelda music, but um, I would guess it's something to do like with like the simplicity and the timelessness of those melodies. Exactly that. So Zelda music. Um, I got in touch with OC Remixes for that Polygon piece because they're the home 
of video game music covers and remixes, right? There's thousands mm. of covers and remixes on there. Um, they told me that Zelda is the most popular franchise in terms of covers and remixes beating Final Fantasy. And a lot of it come a lot of it does come back down to the fact that these are simple melodies, right? Like mm. and a lot of people, especially now like our age, they played these games growing up. And when you hear those melodies over and over and over and over again, they stick with you. And maybe that's why there's more Zelda covers, because if you look at Uematsu's stuff for Final Fantasy, like the sheer density of melodies, do you know what I mean? That guy's a riff Mm. machine. You look at the amount of music in Final Fantasy VII, you've got all of these different melodies. Ocarina of Time, yeah, there's these powerful melodies, but there's a lot less than Final Fantasy. Ocarina of Time is the key game, I think, really, in the series, because music becomes a gameplay mechanic. Mm. And... The do 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 as three notes. Yeah, you know, you could sing those three notes to a, a Zelda fan, and they it would take them back to a time and place. Um, just just three notes, you know, mm. and the idea of using it to like change the the time of day and that kind of thing we see in um, Chia recently released, and we talked about the ukulele, the in-game playable ukulele. Yeah. I mean, that seems like a direct callback. Uh, actually, Chia, there's a lot it, it owes, I think, to Breath of the Wild gameplay-wise, but but mm. that's specifically those musical mechanics um, feel very, uh, you know, from that key point. And, and funnily enough, you know, Final Fantasy VII comes out, 97, Ocarina of Time's 98. I mean, those two are so pivotal, yeah. aren't they, in terms of, sort of video game Beloved older video game music from Japan that people are still in love with. Part of that love is expressed in video game concerts. We both went to see Final Symphony the other week, uh, but there's a fantastic piece up on Pitchfork, which you sent me, about um, the uh, is it Symphony of the Goddess concert series mm. from, a, from a while ago now, from the sort of mid-10s. But uh, that 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 put you know the the piece headline says that put video game concerts on the map. Uh, I think the article is sort of based mainly around like United States. Yeah, it is yeah. Um, but there's so much density of information in there. Is there anything in that article that you you particularly liked or you learned afresh? I think the thing that stood out most is one shout out to Pitchfork for actually covering this stuff. Do you know what I mean? Because it is really, it's genuinely important stuff. And I don't think we're just saying that as like big, massive video game music geeks. Like it is part, it is important. This kind of stuff gets attention. And Pitchfork is kind of like one of the biggest and most well-respected music publications. I think it's fair to say. Mm. Um, it's great that they're actually dedicating editorial time to writing about this kind of stuff. But I think the thing that stood out most was the, there was a late show with Stephen Colbert in 2015 where they had a Symphony of the Goddesses performance. And this is something that I never knew. The performance holds the record for the most musicians ever stuffed inside the Ed Sullivan Theatre with 66 orchestra members and 24 choir singers. God, that must have been a tight fit. (laughs) Exactly. But I love stuff like that. Do you know what I mean? Where you get those kind of like moments in music history as well, not just like video game history, but those moments in music history as well. And there's loads yeah. of other amazing stuff in there um, addressing the, I think there was a comment back in the LA Times where the journalist um, who reviewed one of these concerts way back called it Elevator Music and it addresses some of the scepticism from the diehard classical community around video game music, talks about the importance of 
that community embracing game concerts because they're going to be an important part of getting more people into concert halls. So all of that stuff. But yeah, we'll leave a link um, in the description <laughs> to the piece and everyone should give it a read because it's, ah, I didn't even realise I did that. Yeah, you get it. <laughs> did so not delayed reaction. I did that. I'm so good with puns. I'm just dishing them out unintentionally. Uh, it's really interesting this piece, uh, both your piece and the Pitchfork piece, kind of makes me that they're, they're dense, they're brilliant with details, the kind of details that I would just love to like memorize every bit of. So I, you know, I love, you know, I know you love a nostalgic nugget of information. Yeah. That is your, you know, that is your crack cocaine of uh, <laughs> of choice. It's just like nuggets of information about <laughs> about video game music from the past. It definitely feels reflecting on that that concert piece that the struggle for music, video game music legitimacy to, with Zelda in the lead, Final Fantasy, that kind of music mm. being the most popular, kind of emanating out, took place over the noughties and the teens, I think. Yeah. And hopefully, you know, in the 20s moving forward, that won't be a struggle anymore. You know, hopefully no. we're over it. You know, Super Mario Brothers movie this year, Tears of the Kingdom is just sold, you know, like gangbusters and is dominating the conversation. Um, so hopefully, you know, we're past that kind of main body, that that immediate stigma, you know. Yeah. Um, and we can have better conversations with people outside the video games kind of fandom. And, and yeah, Legend of Zelda, Koji Kondo helps us kind of get there a little bit, I think. Or people's, lo- people's love of those things. 100%. We got a tweet from someone uh, after we asked a quick question. They uh, At Copilot uh, said uh, they think that the soundtrack for Tears of the Kingdom does a great job capturing the spirit of the Zelda series. And I definitely agree. We will return to The Legend of Zelda for our topic. We have an excellent interviewee. But now we'll move on to just a few bits of news, much less than um, in recent uh, episodes. Matt, do you want to kick us off? You've got a story here about uh, Candy Crush Saga, another track drop in Candy Crush Saga. Another, an album drop, kind of. So basically, Ah. um, we spoke before about Megan Trainor debuting a track through Candy Crush with a 24-hour exclusivity window. Candy Crush Saga has done it again, this time with the Jonas Brothers, who have dropped a load of exclusive tracks. Um, So it was the tracks Summer Baby and Sail Away, they were available in the game again for 24 hours before they went up on streaming platforms, DSPs, anything else. In addition to that, um, the people in the band were transformed into candified characters and immersed (laughs) in the Candy Kingdom to celebrate the the mobile game's music season um, for over two weeks, which is quite Mm. a long length of time. So you've got this new music in the game, you've got new revenue streams from purchasable characters in the game, and there was also fans and players can enjoy a Candy Crush remix of the brothers' brand new hit single, Waffle House, exclusively in the game. So you've then got the music team responsible for the music in Candy Crush remixing a Jonas Brothers track, which it seems wild that we're even having this conversation. Do you know what I mean? But I've said this before where I kind of say mobile games are doing a lot of really cool stuff at the moment in terms of thinking outside the box. Candy Crush is one of the biggest mobile games in the world. Uh, So I think we will see plenty more of this. And I hope 
we see plenty more video game inspired tracks by Tenacious D. Because you've listened to that new <laughs> song, right? Tell me more about that. I have. It's very short. It's very fun and enjoyable, as Tenacious D are known for. They released a short song and video called Video Games. One, two, three. I don't play video games no more. I never play video games. Except for a little bit of God of War. I never play video games. Maybe once in a while, a little bit of Fallout 4. But that's okay, not right now. I got things to do, because I don't play video games. No Perfectly natural, because Jack Black's coming off the back of the Super Mario Brothers... Uh, Super Mario Bros, sorry. Uh, probably he's the best part of that film, I guess. So it sort of seems to be consensus voice acting-wise. Yeah, and he's even got a, a sing song in there. So it seems perfectly natural Tenacious D would would capitalize on that to some extent and what's interesting is he it's like a it's like a i don't need to apologize to you kind of a song like i like video games but i don't need to apologize for it uh and the, jo the joke is that he doesn't play video games but of course he plays all these massive triple triple a games god of war fallout 4 red 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 Dead Redemption 2 you know these are some of the biggest sort of triple a uh titles and uh, my favourite lyric, lyric, of course, is free G T D D T D D T D D T D D. Very profound. But yeah, but he, he, I think the general sentiment, isn't it, is just like these aren't game, these aren't just video games. These yeah. are experiences. You know, these are places I've been um, and kind of lived in. Which is a nice sentiment. I don't think anyone can argue with, with that because it's kind of sort of sends up the defensiveness. I yeah. think that gamers can feel against you know being stigmatized and feeling attacked by the outside world, and also mm. games not being high art considered high art. And he uh, just cuts through all of that, doesn't he, with a bit of yeah. a bit of a laugh. No, I love it. First new song in five years as well, and ah. I am a huge Tenacious D fan. Like I remember getting trip tribute on CD, went in my Sony Walkman, carried that around everywhere for like a long, long time. So I love the fact that the first new song they've put out in five years is about the things that we both love. I was like, yes, Jack Black, go on. Matt, I thought we were going to get away this week without having a Fortnite story. We haven't got a Roblox <laughs> one, but uh, inevitably, inevitably, what's the Fortnite story of this this time? There is always something happening in the world of Fortnite with a link to music, and this time it is Finland using Fortnite to promote its Eurovision entry, cha-cha-cha. And you know what? We've all come off the back of Eurovision. There's a lot of excitement around that. Um, Finland came second in the end and were clearly robbed, if I do say so myself. I'm particularly <laughs> disappointed considering I put quite a lot of money down on Finland. Thank goodness for my Australian top 10 finish backup bet, which saved me. But yeah, <laughs> essentially... Um, so there's a Fortnite map which will take players to a virtual recreation of Helsinki Senate Square where players can visit a designated dance area and listen to Finland's Eurovision submission, cha-cha-cha. I think this is just a really interesting way of promoting a Eurovision entry, especially considering there's a fan submission, uh, sorry, fan vote element to Eurovision. Do you know what I mean? It's not just a jury. The fans can vote on what they think their favourite performance is as well. I'd be interested to know how much this actually translated into verts. 
and it's not the first time that a virtual platform has been used as part of a voting submission. Um, you said we weren't going to talk about Roblox, but really, really quickly, the I think it was the Brit Awards last year, there was an integration in Roblox where the voting was actually linked to Roblox, so you could cast a vote within Roblox, which I think is absolutely wild. And when you consider the sheer volume of players that platforms like Fortnite and Roblox have, I think more people will become aware of this, and I think we'll start seeing platforms like Roblox and Fortnite essentially used as marketing platforms for TV or radio or film award things where fans can vote, and that voting is somehow implemented within the game. So join us in two weeks' time, where once again we'll be talking about the biggest Fortnite music updates. But speaking of music updates, Ministry of Sound seems to be kind of like doubling down on gaming. What was it that you found? Yeah, I don't know too much about this. Uh, it's already they're already two weeks deep into a run of live streams. Uh, that's a sort of crossover, you know, club culture and video games. Ministry of Science, Sound and Lush uh, have a gaming live stream on Twitch. Uh, it's a mixture of streamers and musicians who will guest star called Beyond the Player. Uh, they've got in-depth interviews uh, and they'll be doing, you know, challenges and giveaways, that kind of thing. I think they've done two already. Uh, the date, you know, when we're recording now, um, the third of their, uh, I think it's eight show run will be uh, on Tuesday, the 23rd of May, 2023 coming up. Um, so, yeah, do do this will come out on the Monday before, hopefully. So literally tomorrow, I guess, for, for people listening to this fresh um, so, yeah, definitely uh, check that out if it's of interest. Mm, that sounds cool. I'm in for anything that showcases the link between club culture and game music, as you know. So I'll check that out. That is cat- catnip for you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. From club music to contemporary classical, Zelda music, and I think basically all things Zelda yeah, we're we're veering back to the Zelda lane of the of the motorway uh, with our topic this week. So, Matt, you spoke with one of the most interesting kind of video game music speakers that I think I I had the pleasure to catch Tim Sumner some years ago giving a talk. Um, about something completely different you Mm. have you chatted to him for your polygon piece he's a lecturer in uh, music at royal holloway university of london he's the author of the legend of zelda ocarina of time a game music companion Uh, he also co-edited alongside melanie fritch of the cambridge companion to video game music which is an academic book really it's like an academic textbook but Mm. still an interesting read i think if people Wanted to check that out. And yeah, he's a, a leading academic in the study of what they're calling ludomusicology. And uh, I really look forward to hearing your chat with him. So, Tim. Just to start with, can you introduce yourself and just tell us more about what you do? Absolutely. Um, thank you very much for, for talking to me. Um, my name is Tim Summers. 
I'm a lecturer in music at Royal Holloway, University of London, um, and I research music in film and television, but most especially video games. And my work looks at all kinds of different video games, and my main interest is understanding the experiences and meanings that music and games and media provide to the huge audiences that these media um, address. So I'm researching video game music, finding out about how it works, the effects it has, how it means, um, and all that kind of stuff. And I particularly enjoy uh, talking and researching about the music of Zelda. And before we dive in to the music of Zelda, specifically Tears of the Kingdom and Breath of the Wild, you have a book out on the music about The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. Can you just tell us quickly about that? Yeah, absolutely. It's called uh, Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time, um, a game uh, music companion. The idea of the book is to take a video game, in this case Ocarina of Time, and look at every single tiny bit of music in it. And the point is to use this as a way to explore how music and games works, the effects it has, and also to just show how video games are full of music, um, particularly these sort of Nintendo games and uh, games like Legend of Zelda. There's so much music, every tiny thing, but yes, the big cutscenes, but also even just putting in your name, saying yes to a dialogue op option, they're sort of shot through with music all the way through them. Um, so the book is an exploration of both how music in games works in general and in specifically and music in Ocarina of Time works. I think it's fair to say you're an expert on the music in The Legend of Zelda. So with that in mind, when people think about Zelda music, I think myself included, we think about the Song of Time, Saria's song, obviously the main Zelda theme itself, the Overworld theme. <laughs> got the uh, you've got a perna galloping over the menu music at the start of Ocarina of Time all of that and then in comes Breath of the Wild which I think to say is probably quite the departure from the style of music that most people would associate with the Legend of Zelda how would you compare the kind of leap from the Legend of Zelda music, which is dominated kind of by these mainstay melodies, songs like the ones I just mentioned earlier, to this approach in Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom, which is more piano dominated, I think for the vast majority of the score, more minimalistic. Like how, how would you compare the two? One of the interesting things about when we get to Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom, the process that's going on, is quite similar to what's the process that's happened in, in previous Zelda games. And mm. What I mean by that is Zelda games have always combined musical genres and traditions together to serve whatever effect or story they're telling. However, what is different in, I think, Breath of the Wild, particularly when we suddenly come to that game, is how that manifests. And it's exactly as you're saying, we don't get as much of the kind of big Hollywood score 
Instead, it's a, a score of space and silence. Um, it's uh, a score that focuses on often sort of individual members of an ensemble. We can hear individual instruments really, really clearly um, and how they're performed. But that sense of individualism and loneliness, which again is part of the plot, it's part of the feeling the game is trying to make for us. Um, and so we end up with, rather than big constant melodies, we get these sort of fragments and fragmented texture. And that makes perfect sense. You know, the world is in ruins. You know, we go to, um, there's a fantastic encapsulation of this really early on, where you're on the plateau and you go down and you go in and you go and see the Temple of Time and the place is in ruins. And the music that you hear, it's a piano piece, and it's a really stretched out version of the song of time, the music that plays when you encounter the same place earlier. And so the music is kind of in ruins a little bit as well, which is fantastic, but it's also startling. Breath of the Wild, there's perhaps a much slightly more subtle implementation uh, where the music is integrated into the soundscape even more. We don't tend to get the music dominating in the sound world as it has in a lot of earlier games. Um, and stylistically, yes, we do get some Hollywood music at times, there's much less of it. Instead, we're getting um, the piano music. It sounds quite modernist in places. We, we sound, it evokes music of sort of 20th century classical piano composers, um, people like maybe even Verez or um, Ives, Poulenc, Antile, these people creating um, musical textures that are sometimes quite fragmented. So when we get to Breath of the Wild, we've got um, music that does continue our traditions, but also sometimes those traditions are displaced. The Lost Wood doesn't sound like it does in earlier games. And so um, we've got a, a stylistic diversification going on. But again, the fragmentation, I think, of the sonic world is really startling. With all of that in mind, what kind of effect do you think this has on players? I mean, I guess we've already touched on that briefly because I think in many senses it's probably fair to regard Breath of the Wild as a post-apocalyptic game, right? It's kind of like post-ruinous Hyrule. So... What kind of effect do you think this minimalist approach to the music in Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom, what effect do you think that has on players? I think it can make it uh, a very lonely experience playing the game. And again, that's part of the point. I don't, that sounds like a criticism. I don't mean it like that. That's part of the aesthetic experience the game wants to make. These fragmented textures, you don't have that musical support journeying with you. Um, it can, at times, that same approach can provide great rewards suddenly when you recognize that fragmented melody, when you suddenly have the, I don't know, London Ranch music appears in the stables, the Dragon Roost music from Wind Waker appears in Muto Village.
suddenly those medis come back and you go, wow, I've got them. And they're precious. They're these emotional moments, almost because they're unexpected. Um, and, you know, and it would be so boring if every game used the same theme for every time you encounter the same place. So it can give you great rewards. Or suddenly when towards the end the orchestral music comes up and, and we get you know, these mm. huge statements of the themes we've been longing to hear. Or when you can suddenly get to Hyrule Castle. And and Gannon's music starts coming in. You go, oh, the organ's here. It's all going to go well. Um, and so they can provide the, the, that fragmentation, that loneliness can, can provide great payoff. Um, but it can also make it quite sort of, it's like intimate experience. So much mm. of the piano, a solo instrument, um, sort of ties into our emotional relationship with with the character. Um, I think it's also there's also an interesting trend I think going on a little bit with the style of the games, which is I think is what we hear is a um, Almost like a um, anime influence. Yeah, I'm thinking particularly of the yeah. Joe Hishashi Studio Ghibli stuff style here, and I think that connection of music that's very much influenced by um, you know, French Impressionism, uh, but also um, sort of 19th century, late 19th century, 20th century orchestral romanticism as well is kind of coming in there as well, which which is part of the musical language. I think that's partly ties into why the piano is so big in the score yeah. as well, and its harmonic language too. Is there a way to describe the music in Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom outside minimalism? And is it fair to make comparisons with kind of contemporary Japanese composers? I think as an example, so I shared um, some music from a composer that I recently discovered, um, Takashi Yoshimatsu, and I'm listening to his music and I'm like, God, this is like Zelda through and through. Do you know what I mean? So like, is... Is there a way to describe the music in Seas of the Kingdom as kind of like contemporary classical Japanese? Like, is that a fair comparison? Like, what, what more can you say about that? If I was going to talk about stylistic things, I think what we're coming into here is we're seeing a lens on music history, actually, through this game, through, through Breath of the Wild, and particularly through you know, Tears of the Kingdom. I haven't played a tremendous amount, but it's, it's leaning even more into that sort of Ravel sound world. In some ways, this is a really interesting microcosm of the history of Western classical music and its relationship with Japan as well. What we're hearing is, is yes, the influence, I think, from anime I, and um, also to a certain extent from contemporary Japanese classical composition. I think yeah. you're really onto something in that. So if we look at the history of classical, as it were, and we use that in the Western art music sense of classical um, music in Japan, it really becomes um, starts to boom in Japan in the late 19th, 30, early 20th century. A lot of that does come through late 19th century orchestral music and particularly French Impressionism. So we're getting your Debussy and your uh, and, and Ravel. Um, and the number of contemporary Japanese composers um, who have cited Ravel and Debussy as being um, influences that are really quite striking. Mm. And so what happens is quite early on, um, in the in the twentieth century, there's a huge boom in um, in classical music in in Japan, uh, particularly looking towards this French orchestral sort of sound world. The other thing is that, um, and again, this is not an area that I'm specifically an expert in, but based on my understanding and reading, Japanese classical composers have had traditionally much more flexible attitudes to genre and media than the sort of contemporary Western classical composers. Uh, and we can look at somebody like um, Akiro um, Ifukabe, who did um, a fantastic 
orchestral composers, but also did a lot of music for Godzilla, for example. Um, and so there is this sort of stylistic language that blends Debussy and Ravel, late romantic, early modernist music, um, Hisatoto Ozawa, um, Isatoro Sugata, these other composers who are working sort of mid-20th century, they're blending um, orchestral music, particularly late 19th century French romanticist music, that kind of approach um, with um, contemporary classical techniques, also with local Japanese musics as well. And so we get this sound world. And so what we're hearing things like Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom is we're hearing this through several lenses. We're hearing it through contemporary Japanese classical composition. We're hearing it through anime. We're hearing it through its perhaps uh, sources from directly from things like Debussy and, and Ravel and through Hollywood. So all these different sort of stylistic threads, this cultural exchange, this musical conversation between Japan and Western European classical music are kind of coming together. And so that's why we're kind of coming into this conversation in Tears of the Kingdom and Breath of the Wild as these different musical languages sort of intersect and, and relate with each other. Um, so I think it's difficult to pinpoint and say, yeah, it's definitely this influence or that yeah. influence. It's uh, we're in the middle of a conversation between different styles. Well, I think on that as well, it's it's not just a genre thing. It's instrumentation too, right? Because I never thought I would watch a Zelda trailer and then all of a sudden I'd hear a sax best out of nowhere. Do you know what I mean? I, I remember seeing that last trailer for Tears of the Kingdom and hearing the saxophone and I was just like... There's a sax in Zelda now. <laughs> like, where, where, where has this come from? And Link. This seems to be such a diverse range of instrumentation used in Tears of the Kingdom. Again, I've, I've skipped through music that people have uploaded and there's a lot of electronic stuff too, which is something that I'd never associate with Legend of Zelda, but then I guess it makes sense now with the ancient technology and the way that's kind of implemented within the game from a narrative decision. So there's so much going on with instruments. Are, are there any specific instruments that you noted outside of the piano when you were playing Breath of the Wild or when you've been playing Tears of the Kingdom so far, like any instruments where you've spotted them and kind of gone, oh, wow, that's a so-and-so. I can't believe that's in there. Or, wow, the way that's played stands out really well. Yeah, a couple of things. I mean, just to go back to the sax thing, because I've seen some people, as you've been saying, being surprised by this. For me, actually, I wasn't that surprised by it because it makes perfect sense because yeah. you've got Debussy Ravel who were using the saxophone in the orchestra. We don't think of the saxophone as an orchestral instrument, but it absolutely was for those composers. And think about and the way it's being played, you know, it's not sort of, you know, you know nightclub jazz yeah. stuff. It's being used in that kind of contemporary classical way. So again, we're kind of going back to particularly the pastoral session, uh, the pastoral sort of theme of it. It's, it's leaning into that, um, you know, the pastoral nature of, of this of this music. So I think it fits again into that kind of story of, of the kind of impressionism of it. And we can also talk of the composer you mentioned earlier, Takashi Yoshimatsu's, um, it was a cyberbird uh, concerto and things like this, again, which use the saxophone in this kind of classical way. And the way it's being played, it really emphasizes the saxophone as a woodwind instrument. Mm. So it ties into that sort of theme of it. You're absolutely right about the, about the synth material. And Tears of the Kingdom um, is continuing a musical story 
that started in, in Breath of the Wild, which is to do with the mechanization. So in Breath of the Wild, you know, we get this quite clear idea of the pastoral stuff, which is friendly and it's stable and it's woodwind and it's breathy flutes. And then we have the, the threat, which is the mechanistic piano, the other guardians come like, mm, da, 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 mm, da, 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 um, and the sort of synth stuff. Seize the Kingdom, early on, we start to get those kind of processed vocal effects. So we know something a bit spooky, a bit weird is kind of going mm. on. And it's sitting in that odd space of, of a musical discourse that's setting up oppositions, setting up different things to tell you, hey, something unusual is going on here. What's going to happen? So um, it's using instrumentation um, in that way. And particularly when you have a world that is so, um, that emphasizes the natural world so much those contrasts between the synthetic and the clearly processed and the more naturalistic is a, is a really um, clear musical discourse to use. What does this urban world design do to soundtrack design decisions compared to the more linear history of the series? I guess where, because of that linearity, players know that when they return to this place or encounter that, they're going to hear the same themes over and over again, whereas this urban world design thing now, like, anything goes musically, right? That's a, that's a really interesting question. Um, but see, the, the kind of open world that we're dealing with mm. in, um, in Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom, when we are in, confronted with such a vast world, we are using the music to help sort of geographically place us. And sometimes that is, it seems to happen in these games in a quite a very specifically localised way. It's very local how this works. Um, the you know, stable music, the particular city music, uh, they're quite sort of small spaces in that in that sense. And in contrast, we have a lot of space in between them where we're listening to often quite randomising and that fragmentary music as well. Now, that means that when we get to the villages and towns, they really stand out as being very different. We get that sort of constancy of the music. It's very sort of localised in that sense. But for me, my experience with it, one thing I think is the lack of di directionality. The music isn't sort of pushing you in a particular direction because it mm. wants you to kind of go and explore. Um, if you look at the way that people have notated some of the fans have notated some of the music of the, the field music for Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom, it looks like it's a piece of, um, sort of Stockhausen or Boulez with these tiny little fragments of music, these little, little fragments. And for some players like myself, that can suddenly mean you, you hear a piece of music and go, what does that mean? Where is that coming from? Does that indicate something's happening? It'd be disorientated a bit as well. But there's that sense of not, it's not music sort of pushing you along in the same way. Again, it's not that same kind of companion. But I would say I think Tears of the Kingdom is a musically denser game. Hmm. It also means I think, and the way the game is designed is it's, there's less cinematic music, it's less narrative music in that sense. There are fewer cut scenes. So even if we con contrast it to something like The Great Sea in Wind Waker, which again is a world you can sort of go and explore around and, and sort of make your own way. Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom feel much less staged in that sense. 
or filmic. There aren't those moments that are carefully constructed and staged, almost a theatrical to it. The boundaries are much more blurred. Again, that kind of comes across in the music. So I think it's quite a subtle difference in soundtrack design. And and I'm not trying to say that one is better or worse, mm. but they can give quite different experiences um, to our encounters of it. And that kind of randomization is beautiful as well, where you suddenly encounter um, a sequence or a landscape um, which opens up before you and suddenly a piece of music appears. It might be deliberate, it might not be. Other players may have the same experience, they may not. That individualization also ties into the kind of theme of the lone uh, sort of journey of it. Um, so those are some of the differences. That's quite a subtle difference in the way that it works, but it can be tremendously affecting. There are probably quite a lot of people out there as well playing Tears of the Kingdom and maybe having similar thoughts to when they played Breath of the Wild, where it's, God, I wish I wish these themes were in it, or I wish there was more music, because I think it's fair to say there was backlash from some Zelda fans about the soundtrack and... This is why I wanted to chat to you, because I think once you hear from an expert and learn more about it, it makes you appreciate it more, right? Because then you start putting things together and kind of go, okay, that, that makes sense. And that's quite cool. It's the way they've done this. For all of the people who are kind of maybe not sold on this new music approach in the modern Zelda games, are there any specific moments or is there a specific moment you can think of in, I think it's probably said to Breath of the Wild because we're both not far into Tears of the Kingdom yet, but is there a specific music moment that you think perfectly encapsulates just everything that you've spoken about to us today in terms of here's everything that Breath of the Wild was trying to do musically and here's a moment where all of that came together and the results were just chef's kiss, you know, just like perfect. Um, I mean, I can tell you that the sort of the, there are a few moments that stood out to me it's probably not the most glamorous moment. It's when you land or get into Hyrule Castle at the end of Breath of the Wild. And there was a moment where the music kicks back in and we start to hear and your brain goes, is that, is that the music I think it is? Is that the organ? And it's shivering inducing a little bit. There's that, I think that's an extraordinary moment because it also encapsulates the way that the game kind of holds back a lot of its musical material until it's ready to deploy it for you. And, and you see this, it's a way of, of rewarding fans and rewarding players. You know, they know that fans will hear and understand and be rewarded by these references. That was an important moment for me. And when towards the final end of, uh, again, of, of Breath of the Wild, we start to get the musical material, we get the Zelda theme comes back, yeah. Zelda's lullaby kind of comes back, and it's it's emotional. It's it's slightly overwhelming um, in it, and it's it's really beautiful. 
it's a high risk strategy because it partly works because it is un unusual. Mm. Um, but it's also, I think the other thing that's worth mentioning is that it shows um, a level almost of kind of respect to the players. It's saying, you know, actually, no, you don't need the same theme always. We can give you some quite challenging musical material. This is music you probably wouldn't listen to outside this game. And I think that's a way of showing respect to players um, and kind of going with it. But it's you don't have to love it, but there are times when it just it really kind of comes together and it is emotionally overwhelming, partly because of the absence and because of that long-term strategy of the game. For anybody enjoying the music in Seas of the Kingdom and for anyone who enjoyed the music in Breath of the Wild, are there any composers, contemporary or classical or otherwise, that you would recommend they go out and listen to? Because I think it's fair to say a lot of the people playing Zelda and enjoying the music maybe aren't listening to Debussy or Ravel, do you know what I mean? So are there any composers you would recommend they should go and listen to? I would love to recommend Debussy's orchestral music and Ravel's orchestral music. And this is kind of where the Zelda series started. Mm. You know, the original first Legend of Zelda game, the original music for the overall was supposed to be Ravel's Bolero. Um, but they couldn't use it for copyright reasons. Um, and so I think listening to some of that orchestral sound world is is a really interesting way to engage with this kind of music even more. Um, and go on a Spotify or YouTube safari, but I think I continually come back to the orchestral music of Debussy, Ravel, the um, Rachmaninoff, um, symphonic dances are criminally underrated as beautiful pieces of orchestral music, masterpieces of uh, orchestration. Um, and, and then go and adventure into the world of contemporary Japanese music as well. Um, we lost not that long ago the wonderful Richie Sakamoto, whose music is painfully beautiful at times. And I, I always find um, extraordinary uh, experiences listening to his music, everything slightly more adventurous. Um, the music of Taro Takamitsu, uh, beautiful music, film music, concert music, again, working across several genres, inspiration heavily inspired by Debussy. Um, so I, I, go and explore in that kind of sound world if you want to hear more. Amazing. Tim, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure, as always. My pleasure. Thank you. That was an absolutely fascinating interview there. And we are moving on to Done in 60 Seconds, where we recommend each other something. It could be music. It could be something else. We've only got 60 seconds to talk about it and convince the other person that they might want to check it out. Matt, you are up first. Have you got your timer of doom ready? It's like a Zelda puzzle, isn't it? So you've got 60 <laughs> seconds to, to, to achieve your goal. Are you ready? I am um... You wait for it because you're in for a treat. Right. I come bearing gifts for fans of all things Zelda music, but specifically the music in Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom. So there's a lot of people that draw comparisons between the music in both of those games with minimalism music, particularly stuff by Debussy and Ravel. I was in a bit of a rabbit hole on YouTube listening to some Debussy, accidentally stumbled across a guy called Takashi Yoshimatsu, and thank God for YouTube's algorithm because it is one of the best things I have listened to in ages. These beautiful, sparse, 
delicate piano flourishes into these wild chords where you've got like five different octaves just all thrown together. It is a party of epic piano proportions and this is Piano Concerto Memoflora Op 67 released in 1998. Let's take a listen. That sounds absolutely amazing. I cannot wait to uh, give this a try. Uh, Matt, I am so glad that you unearthed this um, because it is a very special piece. I think some of it sails so close to Breath of the Wild soundtrack that people... Almost too close. <laughs> yeah, so some people might be stroking their chin. But um, no, there's, there's, you know, I've long been a fan of um, hearing bits of classical music mm. that sound just so reminiscent of, of favourite bits of... of um, video game music uh, I'm singing in a choir I'm singing Carl Jenkins The Armed Man at the moment and there's a bit of that you'd swear blind was like Final Fantasy 7 Final Fantasy 8 um, kind of that Carmina yeah. Burana kind of oh, oh. Um, so this was this is, is such a beautiful piece it is really stunning and um, yeah I think everyone everyone who's vibing on uh, the state of Hyrule in the latest duology should absolutely check this out um, 100% recommendation. Also worth noting as well. Um, so obviously we'll leave a link to that song. I'd recommend that you check out his other stuff. He's got some sax concertos as well, which are absolutely wild, but he's also... And sax, reco- makes, sax makes an appearance in Tears of the King. Exactly. Another comparison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, almost too similar. <laughs> but he's he's also recorded a symphony cover album of one of Tarkas's albums and Tarkas are like an incredible mm. like prog rock band so he's literally taken a prog rock album and turned it into a symphony orchestra like a, 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 he's just a brilliant human being <laughs> like he's just... <laughs> but yeah what, what have you what have you got for me okay let me get my my timer ready Okay, I've got a podcast recommendation for you today, although I know you've probably already listened to this, but uh, I guess the recommendation goes out further. Uh, Simon Parkin, the excellent journalist and book author, uh, game journalist, uh, among other things, uh, has a new podcast called My Perfect Console, where he's doing the Desert Island Discs thing, it's sort of five, you know, five of your favourite games with... A very, very interesting lineup of guests. He's gone out of his way to make it really kind of, you know, diverse people from all over walks of life. Um, recent ones are with Ian Cook of Churches and also Tetsuya Mitsuguchi, the Miz of Res Fame. Both excellent, both very candid and inspiring people. Ian Cook, especially, I mean, just loves, 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 loves video games as well as he talks about being in the band. So, yeah, definitely check out that podcast. I love the fact they've got um, Miz on as well, because mm. for people who haven't listened to our episode with the Kenji Eno special, we had James Milk on as a guest, and he did a lot of partying with Miz and Kenji Eno <laughs> back in the day, and Miz sounds quite 
the character. I love the fact. I think he just walked into Sega, didn't he? And basically was just like, "Have you got a job for me then?" <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> it is a fascinating interview. His English is excellent, actually. Mm. So it's not one of those kind of slower interviews with a Japanese game creator yeah. or something where you have to wait for the translation and all that. It's a, it's a, you know, he he's a very fluent speaker and and a very interesting person. So mm. yeah. That's all we have time for on this uh, GXM podcast, episode number five. Thanks so much for joining us on our exploration at the intersection between our two favourite things, of course, Zelda and Zelda. Uh, Please be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on your podcast service of choice, especially Apple Podcasts, please. Uh, You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at GXM Podcast. I'm at T Quilfelt, that's T-Q-I-L-L-F-E-L-D-T. Matt is at Matt Ombler on Twitter, Matt with only one T. If you have any feedback at all, comments, complaints, corrections, that kind of thing, hit us up at gxmpodcast at gmail.com. The show was produced by both of us, it was edited by me, and music is by Zach Foster. podcast service of choice especially apple apple